mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work. I am John O'Beck. This is episode 27. And this week, we've got DJ Payne. He's not a wrestler. He's not a club DJ. He is, in fact, just a guy named DJ Payne. But DJ's a guy I met a few weeks ago who has done a lot of cool stuff. And he's been around for a bit longer than most of my guests. <laughs> which means he's done even more cool stuff. DJ's a photographer by trade. He's done a lot of work with uh, live music. He's been involved with record labels. He's currently hosting a breakfast radio show. He's done a lot of podcasting. So there was plenty to talk about with DJ, and this was my longest episode by a long way because of that. Definitely could have gone a lot longer. Also helps that DJ loves to talk. He's usually the one doing the interviews, so uh, maybe he enjoyed being on the receiving end of the questions this time around. So I hope you find this as interesting as I did. Here's DJ. Enjoy the show. So how do you describe yourself when someone asks what you do? Well, now I say I'm a former uh, photographer who now works in radio. Sure. That's my two-second answer. Okay. And what's like the... (laughs) The 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say uh, I've spent the last 20-something years being a professional photographer. Uh, I've always worked in the creative spaces. And I've had a massive career shift in the last 12 months of getting into radio. I've worked in audio a long time as well. As in, uh, I've run a record label. I've done podcasting. I've done a lot of stuff in radio as a volunteer. And the opportunities have come up over the last year for me to get involved in more radio, culminating, I'm now uh, about to start my fourth week doing a breakfast show. Mm. There's almost too much to talk about, so so I don't know where to exactly go. I'll just pick a few things that are interesting. So I don't think I've ever met anyone that's run a record label. So let's talk about that. How did did you get into the record label? And feel free to go back as far as as you need to. All right. So when I was born, no, I'm joking. uh, um, Okay, cut a very long story short. I am from the Gold Coast, born and bred Queenslander. Feel free to send all the Queensland jokes my way. Born and bred Queenslander. In 1995, uh, I came down to Geelong to work with a church and to work with a photographer for a few months. The church in the capacity of youth, working with youth, and the photographer to learn how to be a photographer. My background was in illustration, design, uh, fine art, all that type of stuff. Mm. I started being a photographer and photographing a lot of music, especially Christian music events. I was really into Christian music. And back in the... This is now the mid-90s when there was actually a music scene and there was record labels and people spent money on music. Uh, And... I was going to a lot of festivals, and back then there were a lot of Christian music festivals around, believe it or not. Mm. And uh, there was like three or four major annual ones a year. And so I would go to all of them and photograph them, and I would work as a photographer for a lot of these organisations. And I got to know a lot of the bands and a lot of the people running labels and things like that. And it just so happened that in Geelong, in the 90s, the second, third, first... Uh, biggest Christian music distributor was based in Geelong. Uh, CMC Christian Mark became Christian Marketing. They were right on my doorstep, and I knew a lot of people. I got to know a lot of people working there, and I went to them as a total nuff nuff on the street. It was 1997. 
Uh, so we're going back now 20 years ago. Scary. Very scary. Uh, I was in my mid-twenties. Did you have the beard? Uh, might have had a dodgy goatee. Did you, have, did you have hair back then? Uh, very little, yeah. if not just uh, you know clipping it off. Okay. Yeah, I went. I went bald. I went grey, bald, and hairy very early in life. Okay. Like when by the time I was twenty one, I knew I was going to be bald. So uh, I went into the record label. They I went into the CMC distribution company and said, "Hi, I'm DJ Payne." I've got all these ideas. In fact, I've made a little handy book of all my ideas of what you should be doing in the music industry. And the guy who was running the music division of the of the uh, company had no idea about, had no idea who I was, had no idea about music, was not interested in music at all. He just got the job. Was he just like a pencil pusher, or what was his? I won't go in. Some people will be able to work out who this is. Uh, look, okay. he was a love. He is was is a lovely person. His first love was basketball and sport. And I went into the office and every inch of the office was lined with basketball posters, <laughs> everything to do with basketballs. And on his desk, there were like four CDs. And amongst, like, I cannot tell you how much sporting stuff was in that office. And straight away, I realized, oh man, I'm wasting my time. Had a chat with him, gave him the thing. And he was like, great, don't call us, we'll call you. Had a flip through the thing and was totally nonplussed. It was a total waste of my time. And I was like, oh man, that was a waste of time. But as I was about ready to go, this little whirlwind went past the office door and um, this little New Zealand accent like, hey, mate, what are you doing? Like, you know, it came out and it was the CEO of the company, um, Stuart Duncan, who was fresh from New Zealand and was fresh from working for for Polydor Records in New Zealand and had worked in the industry in a big way over in New Zealand and Australia. So he was uh, taking the helm. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just happen to have a spare coffee of, copy of this book. I can give it to you, Mr. CEO, Mr. Head of the head of the company. And he was like, oh, thanks. You know, and, you know, who are you again? And I'm like, I'm just a dude. And he was like, okay, don't call us, we'll call you. And again, I walked out and said, oh, what a waste of time. Two weeks later, I got a phone call from Stuart saying, I read through your stuff. There's a lot of great ideas here. One in particular is starting a, a proper Australian Christian record label. Not devoted to a particular genre, but devoted to Australian artists, working for Australian artists. Said, I love the idea. Come in, we'll have a chat. Mm. The chat, And that was the birth of... And he said on the spot, what would you call it? And I said, oh, I don't know. Mustard Records? He goes, okay, done. Let's go. Where does mustard come from? Mustard just came... For me, I liked the colour mustard at the time. <laughs> uh, this was the mid-90s. Uh, <laughs> I like the word as a, as the as a graphic designer. I really like the word mustard, and then as as a Christian, I like the word mustard because it means whatever people want it to mean to them. So for the secular audience, for the non-religious audience, they were like, "Cool mustard, spicy mustard, hot mustard, yeah, man, love it, flavor." <laughs> And for the Christians, they were like, oh, yeah, it's very deep. The mustard seed yeah. of faith. I see what you mean by that, brother. And I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. I don't care. Just what it was a word. I, I hate names. I hate names. So we went out and we signed Sons of Cora. We signed Compliments of Gus. We worked uh, Wishful Thinking, uh, yes. Brethren, uh, Soul Keepers, uh, all, the, all the Brisbane crew, uh, the guys from Battered Fish, who then became Leo Nine. Um, we tried to say sign Caleb James. Uh, we, you know, we uh, and a few other bands and solo artists um, around the place. We worked with a bunch of them, but then the music industry basically died. 
uh, in, in around 2000, everything sort of started falling apart. For the distribution company especially, it really started falling apart. They were mm. they started getting taken down by some big American people. And Stuart came to me and said, listen, if I give you mustard, like I just hand over mustard to you, and what would you do with it? And I said, well, I think I would turn it into an Australian hip-hop label. And believe it or not, there was like one other Australian hip-hop label back in the year 2000, or one or two. But I was like, I think we could do something like that. And he was like, okay... Let's get everybody else out of their contracts, set them up doing their own thing. So Sons of Cora and Stuart set up a new label for themselves. Compliments of Gus set up their new label. We let everybody else out of their things. And a lot of the deals we had were just one one album deals type of thing. And we kept it going for another, I'd say, five or six years, working with the Australian hip-hop mm. Christian community, but getting a secular distributor and getting their albums into the stores there so it was always a part-time gig yeah. there was never any money in it <laughs> in fact it cost us thousands of dollars we did big national tours we brought out american artists we worked with every festival and everything we could and and, and eventually when it was time for us to give up give up the day when i say us it was me and my business partner with it we handed it over basically to the guys that we'd been working with and out of that grew we knew the next stage of what we were doing was basically going more ministry. And so out of that grew a church movement out of Sydney called Crosswords, which is a monthly Christian hip-hop church. Well, is now in like seven different countries, you know, as a ministry. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Crosswords ministry, uh, where they just basically do church for hip-hop heads, yeah. you know, type of thing. Both those who are existing already Christian members who are going to churches but don't feel like there's any hip-hop love in their church. And then for other people who are who are out of the hip-hop scene and might be interested in the whole God church thing, mm. but like, oh, this is a non-offensive and non-scary way to do it. I know what these guys are doing and go to, go to those type of things. So, sure. yeah. That's very interesting. And that's all <laughs> of that story in, in as short yeah. as I can do it. Sorry. That's good. No, you've, you've done well. So... Did you kind of see hip hop getting as big as it is now in Australia? Because it seems to be like bigger than rock, really. If you if you're being honest. Yeah, look, Australia hip hop in Australia seems to be a great mix right from the very beginning. Believe it or not, a lot of the a lot of the technology that the first original hip hop albums were created with were invented by Australians. The whole sampling idea, the keyboards, and everything like yeah, that was all Australian. That. Yeah, yeah. Being a fan of uh, and having on former guest John Saffron, you would have heard that whole story. Uh, Saffron and I have the same background as far as into the hip hop scene in the eighties and stuff. And and just like him, I'll echo Saffron and say there was a lot of us who, growing up in the seventies and eighties, who did not identify as Australians with rock. Like we found rock and roll to be much, much more embarrassingly American Mm. than this form of... When hip-hop sort of came, this form of rap music. And and even though we got accused in the 80s of aping, oh, you guys just want to be Americans, we were turning around going, you're standing up there singing with an American accent, playing a rock and roll guitar, pretending you're some rock and roll star. Whereas the the early uh, wave of of hip-hop... Uh, you know, and it's it's still strong today. Was a very Australian accented talking about where you're from. That that idea of the culture of hip hop of representing where you're from 
echoed a lot more for us, especially those who've been raised in urban environments or even sure. suburban environments. So it wasn't tied to the location, but the thought of representing where you're from in yeah. itself. Yeah. I do, I do find... I mean, I can get really politically incorrect and, and say that I do think that the, the new wave uh, of millennials making hip-hop now in Australia... There, it's two, there's two, there's a twofold thing that I'm really um, not happy about. Uh, one of them, I find a lot of it aping American styles now more so than ever before, and and being applauded for it. I think there's a lot of race issues that are coming back that I don't think need to come back in Australian hip hop now, and they're it's almost like they're they're transplanting a lot of the thought about race from America over here, and it feels really foreign to me. And I go, I don't think this is being actually original. I think it's really a clone copy of what's going on in the States and it seems to be getting applauded. Plus, there seems to be this this real... I mean, hip-hop in Australia, believe it or not, is now old enough to have the next generation of young hip-hop artists coming up and dissing the old guys. You know, like, yeah. oh, you old farts and you do it like this and, oh, you used to rap about Barbies and, uh, you know, talk about your thongs, you know, like, but now we're really cool and we talk about this. And it's like, man, it, we can all just exist together. How about showing some respect and, you know, type of thing. So it's a it's an interesting scene. I still keep up with it as much as I'm interested in it, but I'm not all over it like I used to be. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's at an interesting point now where there's probably young people who've grown up with Australian hip-hop actually being a thing. Whereas yeah. I remember being in grade six in yeah. like 1999 yeah. and my friend's big brother coming in the room and being like, check out this Aussie hip-hop. Yeah. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> what? These guys speaking with Aussie accent. We worked with, uh, um, back in the day, we worked with the Funky Nomads, um, a, a group, uh, T-Op and um, I forgot the DJ's name now. And they were the first... Australian hip hop guys to put out a CD, you know they put out a CD and everyone was like, "Whoa!" They put out a CD, you know that's you know we're talking the early nineties and stuff like that. So yeah, we've come a long way. It's great. It's just that the music industry now is a totally different beast to what it was. I mean, our whole focus back then was putting out top quality physical products, creating communities, you know, forums. We were right. I believe it's back in the day of the forums. Message boards. Yeah, message boards and forums was it. It was before social media even. Like, you know, and as as everything changed, it was funny. Me and my business partner started building a website that we, our bigger dream was to make it a bit of a social media platform for music artists of any type, starting with, you know, Australian hip hop and then sort of opening up to Mm. anybody. As we were developing that and started tentatively building it and working at how what we wanted it to do, Bandcamp, the website Bandcamp became. I, I, I got a beta mm. test for Bandcamp, okay. <laughs> and I was as soon as I tested it and saw what it did, I was. I said to my business partner, "We're done. They're, they're doing it better, and yeah. exactly what we want to do. They're doing it better. They're doing all the social stuff we want to do. We probably wanted to make it a little bit more social than than what Bandcamp is." But the ease of use of Bandcamp is, is as soon as I saw that, I was like, it doesn't need to be record labels anymore. <laughs> it doesn't mean, and artists can do everything that a record label, yeah. label, record label can do. So, um, yeah, so it was, you know, it was fun. It was, it was a fun part-time hobby. And then it was a combination of my family growing, responsibility, and uh, the music industry changing was time for me to call it a day. Sure. It's... 
tough to keep up with technology changing when you know it's only a part-time job probably yeah. but interesting to bring up Bandcamp. i think it's such a great platform like oh. the fact that people that bands can sign up i don't know if there's fees or anything but they can sell their own yeah. music on it yeah. with just the e-commerce factor of that is so good and when i published my book i was looking around for like the, the band camp of books. Yeah, the yeah. band camp version for authors. And I was like, why isn't this a thing? So there's a million dollar idea if yeah. someone can be bothered to... But then you've got to compete with, with Amazon, though. That's the that's trick. Yeah. But, you, you know, being able to sell it yourself yeah. it would be, you know, just having that platform to, to do it where they can click on your custom... It's not even... It's like a templated page. Yes. yes. Just, just click buy and then yeah. you can organize the shipping yourself. Like that, yeah. that would be great if there was such a thing. But alas... Yeah. Uh, uh, so copy, copyright paid in it here, John. Yeah, twenty seventeen. It's the twenty ninth. So from there, you, uh, when did you start getting into podcasting? And I guess that was an avenue for radio. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of an Apple geek, a bit of a tech nerd uh, as well as for funsies. I remember when I first heard the word podcast, and it was a news article. This is back when RSS was a, still a thing. Yeah. You know, like people were really excited about you know, RSS, really simple syndication or whatever they decided it stood for in the end. <laughs> but um, we were still, we were excited about being able to subscribe to bloggers and have all these feeds, you know, pop up. And then guys started using it to embed, uh, like, you know, like in case, you know, audio files or even video files that were tiny back then. So with the RSS feed, you could get audio coming in. So if someone did an audio part of the story, it was coming in and there was a few bloggers experimenting with that. And we were like, man, this could be the next thing. And then Apple came along and said, they built it into iTunes. You can subscribe to an RSS feed and we will call it a podcast in iTunes. And I think this is 2004, okay. 2004, 2003. And, uh, and I was like, whoa. And back then there was stories of, there were podcasts about podcasts back then, believe it yeah. or not, i.e., one guy was like trying to interview all the podcasts, you know, type of thing, because there was only a few of them. And there was a handful, that first wave of, uh, you know, podcasts were actually, you know, quite exciting and very nerdy and, you know, people really, um, you know, excited by this new delivery platform, you know. Mm. So you, you subscribe to a whole bunch of them and you're always looking for recommendations. And in 2005, the same year, I think, whether it was 2004, 2005, when iTunes put it in there, check Wikipedia. On I that think one. it was because I remember the Ricky Gervais show was the first one I ever heard of, and that was in 2005. Five, yeah, okay. And you had to like go, like open up iTunes, yeah, and yeah. click the button, yeah. and, and wait for them to come through. Yeah, and find, exactly. The good old iTunes days. And uh, me and my business partner, uh, who were running the record label, Mustard Records, we did a, uh, a, a Christian, Australian Christian hip hop podcast called In the Midst. And we did. I think we did 20 episodes or so. Um, and it was hard because I was. Ba- I then moved to Queensland. He was still down in Victoria. So we did that back and forth and we experimented with it. But the problem was it was so hard to get people to subscribe. It's hard now, mm. you know, all these years later, over 10 years later, 13 years later, it's so hard to still get people to subscribe. Back then, people just had no idea what you were talking yeah. about. Um and so I started playing. I, I just, new formats would come up, new platforms would come up, trying to make it easy to use. I would sign up and try them out. I did my own DJ Payne show. I, I did a few different incarnations of that. I started interviewing people, which has always been a big passion of mine. Of mine. And in 2000 and 
12 is when I started um, doing photography podcasts seriously uh, and interviewing photographers, uh, you know, from all around the world. And then I thought, you know what, I could turn this into a platform. I could get other shows. I could start other shows around photography. And I know enough people in the Australian photography industry that I could get other people in about different niches. And we started building that. And then straight away I realized that if I could get an advertiser on who was interested in advertising anything to do about photography, they just wanted to know what's the biggest show and I'll advertise on that one. So having multiple shows in that one subject was a waste of time. I was never going to get advertisers for all these other shows. So cut a long story short, you know, after, say, a season, 30 episodes of a few of the shows, we ended them and then amalgamated two of the shows together, the two most popular photography shows we brought together. And that's and that's still going, and that's Photographer Interview. The, the photographerinterview.com if, is the, uh, the URL. The network that I started was the Black Market Network, which then became bmnet.us. And I am now dismantling that and yeah. now just doing podcasts under my own name. Okay. So it's still, you have literally caught me in a massive state of flux with all the <laughs> podcasting. I had a podcast, uh, Popcorn Propaganda, which was a movie review one. I would do that on the radio and do that as a podcast. And I've been interviewed by for a lot of different podcasts over the years. Yeah, so I've, I've always really enjoyed it. And out of, out of all of that podcasting, uh, I was able to sort of uh, leverage that into uh, both working for the photography industry and um, working, you know, with with some photography uh, places and stuff like that. So, yeah. Awesome. So it was was podcasting over many years that got you into doing radio now. (sighs) No, radio. Okay, so radio. (laughs) Um, Radio, I first got into radio in 1994. Five, 95, 96. So it was in the record label. It, it was pre record label. It was pre. No, no, it was be 1994. I tell a lie. It was 1994. Before I'm trying to, I'm remembering different dates in my head. It was 94. Um, back in, in the mid 90s, a, for want of a better word, a Christian franchise of community radio hit Australia. It was called Rima. Yep. From New Zealand. It was originally a massive station in New Zealand. I think it's still going in New Zealand. Rima, uh, 100% Christian radio and messages and everything like that. And they did a big wave. The government changed how they did things. And the government gives away community licenses for, for, for frequencies and bandwidth over the airways to different community groups. And um, for, for most places all around Australia one of the biggest community groups to be able to get themselves together and say, we want a community license, are Christians. Uh, now, depending on where you stand on the on faith, it depends if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but too bad, that's just the way that it is. So who puts their hand up and say, I represent Christians and I'd like to have a radio And that's what happened. That was happening in the 90s. Groups were coming together. Boards were being formed. Right. Incorpor- you know, places were being incorporated. Bought, you know, like from different organisations, different representatives... And there are still plenty of REMA stations around Australia that are still going with a community licence. And one of them started on the Gold Coast, uh, which have been, and, and then most of them have grown into 
no longer Rima stations, there are other types of Christian stations, including the one that I work for now in Geelong, 96.3, was originally Rima. But in 93.94, there was a Rima station started on the Gold Coast. And back then, and it was the same around a lot of places in Australia, different organisations would go for a community licence and they would be tested and share a frequency. You'd have it for a month and then someone else would have it for a month and back and forth. So when Rima first started on the Gold Coast, it was a, a government test and the two people vying for the license was the Christian Rima group and a uh, nightclub dance, uh, you know, group, you know, type of thing of people, which the all of the equipment was in a spare bedroom upstairs in a unit in Narang on the Gold Coast for the guy who was trying to get the dance license. So they would be broadcasting from this bedroom for a month. And then they would say, right, it's turned over to the Christian guys. So the guy allowed, and there must have been some pay allowed, like it was a seediest unit. It was so funny. In the, in the backwaters of Durang on the Gold Coast would allow the, rep, the, the the presenters, the Christian presenters, to come wandering on up with their stacks of CDs, plonk them down in, and broadcast and thing. And I was trained under that. They had this old ABC, ABC Australian ABC radio guy involved and he trained me and uh he had one of those uh, beautiful voices you know radio voice. ra- great yeah. radio voice and i presented two times a week at night at some ungodly hour the youth programming you know the youth and i would literally wander up with all of my cds and play them live speak in between it learn how to do all the radio air checks and all that type of stuff and um did it by solo uh for myself for a, you know a year while they were going for the license, they eventually both, and the good news is, both eventually got it. Yeah. You know, so the Christian mob on the Gold Coast got it, which eventually is still there, and it's now Juice, 107.3 Juice FM, and then the other mob got it, and that's Metro. Uh, Metro, which is a, a fantastic dance and electronic uh, radio station on the Gold Coast. It's so unique to, any, to anywhere else in the country. So, um, so did that mean people were tuning in to listen yeah, to the Christian radio yeah, and they got hit with this dance? Exactly. Track? And vice versa. <laughs> like we would get phone calls and the guy, and I'd, I'd have some guy tripping on ecstasy off his nut, you know, like, oh, mate, that song was, you know, blankety blank, great, you know, oh, effing, uh, can you now play the remix for bloody? And I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'll play something for you, mate. And I like, I have no idea who he's talking about. But they... Uh, you know, or they all ringing up going, what happened to the station? And vice versa. Yeah. Like, you know, we'd have grandmas tuning into the dance station next week. So it was, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, fun times. So when I moved down to Geelong in 95, I found out there was a Rima in Geelong. It was, back then it was in Lovely Banks. I put my hand up. I did a show for a year or so called The Cubby House, uh, which was, again, the youth radio program at night, me playing CDs down here. And then I got canned because it was it was too uh, I di- I didn't follow protocol and it was too it was too radical the music you know we got too many complaints. What uh, were you it, playing? Oh mate, I was playing. I played anything I could find. I I de- this is this is my claim to fame for Geelong. I debuted uh, Jesus Freak by oh, DC really? Talk on my show The Cubby House. Yeah, yeah. It was like whoa, and we got complaints. We got people ringing up going. Wow. 
This is this sounds like Nirvana, and we're like, yeah, that's the point. Yeah, they're copying. They're copying Nirvana for the thing. It's they, like the. It's like the smells like Teen Spirit of exactly, Christian music. Exactly. Much. Exactly. So we uh, we had a lot of fun uh, doing that, and um, and and then and then when I started, then to fast forward when I started the label, uh, got involved again. The station had moved. Uh, this is now 96.3, uh, you know, the Rima of Geelong. And we, I did a few different youth radio evening shows in Geelong over the years down here. Okay. Uh, moving back to the Gold Coast, I went back to the Gold Coast, ran a studio up there for years. And while up there, I was involved in volunteering for Juice and being involved in the breakfast team at Juice FM. And then coming back down here in the last three and a half years, Got to know some of the radio people down there. All the staff had changed. Most of the staff had changed. And have been working on a couple of different projects for them. And literally, um, you know, within a few weeks of me meeting some people who are working for 96.3 down here. This is the commu- Christian Community Radio Station in Geelong. They, the new program director said, we're, we're looking at changing up our breakfast show. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, no way, Jose, that's ridiculous. And a f- literally a few weeks later, we started a new breakfast show with me on, on it. So it's been a real whirlwind of activity. My whole life has just been tipped upside down in the yeah. last few months. It's cool. Seems like it's going well. Yeah, I hope so. We, we're, we're, you know, we're getting a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people really loving the show. Yeah. I've got a great co-host. We work really well together and we really believe in what we're doing. Uh, we've got a really long-term vision of what we're doing with both The Breakfast Show and The Station. So what would you say is the hardest part of the different projects you've been involved in? Whether it's... Oh, easy, easy, easy. The hardest part is me. <laughs> because I am a procrastinator in right. my heart of hearts. I, um, especially, I'm, I'm uh, to quote the castle, he's an ideas man. Uh, you know, you, yeah. you, you know, you're one of those people... Who was who? Who is an ideas person? Uh, I was raised. My father was a manic bipolar, manic depressive. So you know, now you call him bipolar. Back then, you called him manic depressives. But he was a oh, I can't remember. I think it's a type two bipolar, whatever. Which is always up. Like he never had depressive episodes. He was like three or four months of the year. He was high. What we called high. Mm. What my mother called. He was on a crusade, uh, what physicians would saw. He was having a manic episode. And I, I mentioned that because that was really formative for me as a young person because I, I, I've sort of grown up with a lot of dear friends and family and other people who are, who are bipolar. And I think we recognise it a little bit more. And it's never been a stigma for me. I've never thought of it as a... Every bipolar person I know, and I've probably known like 20 over the years, and it's a common theme... If you said to them, you know, here's a here's a button, here's a magic pill that you can take and you'll no longer have bipolar, all of them, except for those who have really bad depressive moments, but even a lot of those would say, no, I wouldn't take it. I really yeah. value, yeah, I really value this manicness. And being raised by by my dad, especially as a very young, young child, very, you know, the earliest memories that I have is my dad being this manic guy waking me up at three or four in the morning going, hey, you awake? And I'm like, I am now, dad. And back then, your dad is a hero. And we would drive around during sunrise all over the Gold Coast as he was helping people, you know, like, but all the time he was talking, he was regurgitating facts and 
you know, uh, like uh, Tim Robbins type of material, you know, like about how important ideas are and what you can do and what you can accomplish. And so that, was, uh, that, that you know, has been very impressionistic on me, uh, as in like it's really impressed into mm. my mind the importance of ideas, the importance of creativity. And so I have always valued that. I've always struggled with with having too many ideas on things over, over the thing but it in 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 hand in hand with that is my own personal and it's an often thing for a lot of artists or creative people is a struggle of procrastination of just having too much the feeling of too much to do and not being organized enough to do it so that is that is the hardest thing i i, I load myself up too much i say yes to too many things and um, I, I struggle with being organised enough to get them all done. Um, so, if that, and that's me being brutally honest, mm. you know. And I'm on, and I'm old enough, and uh, you know, dumb enough to be brutally honest these days, and just say that's the hardest thing. If you talk, there are there are at any one time, I can give you a list of ten people who are like angry with me because I haven't done what they've asked me to do, and they've been waiting on it, and I'm just like you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. So, okay. And I usually ask people for their advice on getting into the industry you're in, but is it something that you can even give advice for? Or would you prefer to give advice to people who are chronic procrastinators? Oh man, I, I look, I'll, I'll go, I'll go for the second one first. Okay. The, the <laughs> advice for the pro for the chronic procrastinators is to get more organized and, and it's funny, a person that I really like, a personality from the States who I listen to, he's now pretty much full-time podcaster, is a gentleman by the name of Merlin Mann. And Merlin Mann originally came on my radar back in the mid-2000s for his work uh, with, a, with a website called um, 36 Folders. What is it? Some 23 Folders? I can't even remember what it is now. Something Folders. And his work around Inbox Zero and, you know, getting things done and all that type of stuff. And... I, I really hooked on to Merlin very early on. I listened to an interview and I read one of his very first blog posts that I'd ever read of his that he'd written and put out there was a story. The reason why he was so obsessed and had started a blog about being organized and getting things done because he was a creative like me who struggled with procrastination and still does. He did a great article of saying he started a new project and he said, you know what? I need to, I need a folder for this new project. And I've got this folder here, this A4 folder. I can use that. And um, you know what would be great if I could get some colour, you know, sh- dividers in it for the project because it's got five different elements. Okay, great. I'll go down to the newspaper shop. And, you know, this will just take, take me two minutes because I've got to start and get it done and I've got to have the first th- proposal written by the end of the day. Fast forward to the end of the day, he's still at the stationery shop <laughs> working out different folders. Like, that was me, like, working out what pen you're going to buy. Like, just everything <laughs> else around getting the actual thing done is so much more exciting. And, um, and so... From him and a few other people that I've read and listened to over the years, the best thing you can do is just is find is, is be as clean and organized as you can with your physical stuff in your physical presence, and that really does help you mentally to do. When I meet someone who says that they they struggle with organization or they struggle with procrastination, I, I my heart goes out to them because I really feel, you know, I feel for them. But then if I see what they're working in and it's an absolute chaos bomb hit, I'm like, stop, there's no excuse for that. 
you need to get that organised and it really does help. Because, you, yeah, you, until you can do that, you can't really do much else. So that's my... my but the other the, my other advice for that is to own it, is to own the fact. Don't be ashamed that you're a procrastinator. Own up to it, identify it, and be open with it because that really takes the guilt away. It's, it takes the shame away from it because you've sort of... I felt a lot of shame about it for a long time. And it's like I'm talking about some sort of disease or drug addiction or something, but you, you do feel like a sense of shame about it. So own, get rid of the shame, get rid of the guilt, own up to it and start making positive, you know, organisational things to, to make it better, you know, and then learn how to say no. That's the thing that I'm still learning. Okay. Um, as far as advice about getting into the industry, I, I, I like to say that I've just sort of fallen into it, but it, but it's not. I realise looking back that I've been honing what I've been doing for a very long time, whether it was working and volunteering in radio, even like I think back to all the times I was able to go to like, you know, get my artists interviewed on Triple J or, you know, different radio, you know, PBS or Triple R or Triple Z and different radio stations around the country, ABC, you know, different things like that, you know, and then also doing radio shows and then doing podcasting, interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people, peoples over the years. All of that was me working towards, you know, being involved in radio. Though I never, ever th- wanted to be an on-air doing a daily show. I never thought that that was for me. But now that I'm doing it, I'm really, really enjoying it. So as far as advice, is just do it. Is just practice, do it in whatever little capacity you want. But have some have some goals, have some very simple small achievable goals to start with that can make you feel good about what you're doing like don't start off and expect in next week you'll be featured on itunes and have you know a thousand listeners it probably won't happen like say look i just need to get a hundred facebook likes on my page and get 10 shows out like that's a great accomplishment to begin right now um you know but then but then keep upping the game for yourself keep up and getting more and more higher goals as you go smaller and smaller but man persistence and actually doing it is 90% of the job yeah Um, in the wise words of one of my best mates uh, Simon McRae he he, I want I keep on threatening to make this into a t-shirt he's like it's not hard to be good at stuff you just have to get it done and that's he's a video editor. He works with photographers and video creatives all over Melbourne, and he's constantly amazed at everybody with unfinished projects. Yeah. Everybody I know has four thousand unfinished projects. Where he's not super creative, but mm. he just gets he just knocks them out. Whatever needs to be done is knocked out. Yeah, being able to finish what you start is a skill. <laughs> oh, massive skill that we all we all struggle with. That's it. Uh, that's the other th- great advice is just finish things, get things done, get it out. It doesn't have to be perfect. And and once you've got it out, leave it alone, move on to the next thing. I know I know too many musicians, artists, and even I've I've struggled with this myself. You put something out, the first thing you put out and you think I can do that better. And you end up remixing it, re-recording it, rewriting it, re-photographing it, whatever, a thousand times. And it's like, no, just move on. Just move on to the next thing. So, yeah. There you go. That's why it's called putting in work. (laughs) There's always something more to do. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could do anything, DJ, and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you choose to do? Oh, that is a great question. That is a great question. 
can I be cheeky and say like I would I would buy a lottery ticket for, you know, for, for no no uh, uh, other than other than a getting rich scheme yeah. uh, you know some sort of crazy wish like that about money um, creatively if I knew that I couldn't fail that is a really that that's a great question on so many levels I'm now I'm thinking about my interviewer hat has gone on yeah. and I'm thinking about the the, the, the mental think thoughts behind that uh, question um. <laughs> I guess with this part of my life, you know, doing, getting used to doing, having a brekkie show, a morning show routine that I'm still trying to get used to, uh, I would work on my podcasting brand of myself more and, and build that up and try, try to do some more creative things with that. If I, if I could do anything and money wasn't the option. I know that I'm going to get money from it. No worry, no no matter at all. I would probably build out, you know, the podcasting thing in, in a more creative way. And 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 uh, if I didn't have to worry about it succeeding, yeah. Uh, but I don't know. Anyway, sorry. I think, I'm thinking too much about that question. <laughs> That's definitely the longest uh, answer I've had. To <laughs> sorry. That's all right. This is easily the longest episode we've, I've ever done. And oh. I could have gone for another five minutes. So, so. <laughs> thanks for coming out to my studio and, Mate, and hanging out. I, I'm just I'm I'm in love with the studio, <laughs> and uh, I love the fact that that I can actually uh, have a kip in your studio. Yeah, you can have a lie down. I, I, I was actually bed. thinking about doing the entire interview lying down and turning it into a full on uh, therapy session. Yeah, you would have just had to hold the mic over. <laughs> There it is, DJ Payne. You can follow him on Twitter at DJ Payne with an E. Check out Gosha and DJ for Breakfast on Facebook to follow all the stuff they're doing with the radio show. As always, on Twitter, I'm Jono himself. Until next week, keep putting in work. <laughs>